You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Yonatan Grad, the Melvin J. and Geraldine L. Glimsher Assistant Professor of Immunology and Infectious Diseases. This call was recorded at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time on Wednesday, April 8th. I'm happy to, to field questions. Uh, we've been getting some questions on uh, preprint um, uh, on uh, the um, uh, anticipating the trajectory of the epidemic under a variety of different social distancing uh, um, durations and uh, levels of success. And I'm happy to talk about that. Uh, another question that um, uh, we've been thinking about um, is uh, how to do serological surveys uh, and then how to interpret those results uh, given um, that we anticipate they'll probably be done uh, with convenient samples at first. Uh, so happy to, to uh, talk about some of the thinking around uh, serological testing and surveillance as well. Um, but I'll leave it open to questions. Okay, great. Thank you, Dr. Grad. Our first question. You can always count on me to ask the Massachusetts question. The one for today is, um, are we in the surge? We've, we've heard politicians talking about the surge and how does an epidemiologist define when a surge uh, has, has begun? Thank you. Uh, I, you know, I, I am not sure what they mean by the surge. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, I mean, certainly we expect for epidemics there to be uh, exponential growth um, uh, at the start of um, uh, at, at the start of an outbreak, and uh, that is consistent with what we've been seeing. Uh, I um, imagine, uh, although I don't, of course, want to put words in anyone's mouth, that uh, what they're worried about with the surge is the number of cases. Uh, that are being hospitalized relative to, or, or the pace with which, the rate with which we're seeing uh, uh, hospitalized cases relative to uh, the number of uh, hospital and critical care bed availability, um, or re relative to the number of beds available. So, so uh, I imagine that's what they mean uh, by the surge uh, with the uh, anticipated crest of the wave being the peak of the epidemic, but I I'm not sure that that's what they mean. Uh, so it's hard for me to address uh, exactly what that is. But from, from my perspective, you know, thinking about uh, the epidemic, what we expect to see uh, is an exponential, a continuing exponential increase in the number um, uh, of cases, uh, consistent with those diagrams that uh, I, I think everyone has seen, uh, where we see this bell-shaped curve uh, for the epidemic. Thank you. Next question. Hi, um, with the Hill newspaper down in uh, DC. I wanted to ask about um, the, the West Coast, uh, California and Washington State seem to be uh, doing better or, or not as bad as, as some people feared. I wondered if you think that's accurate. You know, do those states seem to be doing better and what might explain that? Have they just been very good at their mitigation or what's going on over there? The uh, data that I have seen is consistent with what you're describing. I think I've seen the same things that uh, other people have seen. I, um, 
that that suggest uh, successful, at least in in some areas, successful flattening uh, of the curve. What could explain that? Uh, yes, I, I I do think successful mitigation efforts, which refer both to um, the timing, so being able to do it early uh, after first cases uh, were observed, and uh, the extent, right? So uh, you may have seen in the, in the New York Times, uh, there was looking at cell phone mobility data, there was a, a figure that indicated that the uh, average distance traveled in the Seattle area uh, dropped over a month from somewhere, I think it was 3.8 miles down to 61 feet, right? So uh, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, physical distancing or social distancing, uh, depending on which, which term you prefer, um, that, that seemed to have been rather successful. So, so I think uh, um, linking uh, the success of the mitigation efforts together and social distancing and other interventions together with the timing uh, is particularly, could be particularly instructive. This underscores the importance uh, of a lot of work that's currently going on where people are trying to really uh, um, formally investigate the impact of these different intervention strategies, their timing relative to uh, the presumed uh, uh, or the known uh, rise in cases or initiation of cases in a particular area. Uh, how well do, do these interventions work? Uh, different, the, the variety of different interventions from school closures to stay at home recommendations. Um, you know, what have they, how well have they done in actually reducing mobility? And then how well has that reduction in mobility translated into reduction in cases and reduction in deaths? So uh, being able to look across the US where we've seen very fragmented responses, but also very different timing uh, of of introduction of, of uh, epidemics, uh, being able to interrogate uh, all of those data together will enable us to really get a sense of which mitigation strategies were successful. But going back to your original question, it really does seem like um, this, this may be due to uh, um, early response, early mitigation efforts, uh, and ones that were successful in, in reducing individuals' uh, mobility. Uh, and and kind of promoting this this notion of social distancing. Thanks. Uh, next question. Yes, thanks for taking my questions. Um, I actually have several questions, but I'll stick to two that are related, um, and then see if any other hands show up and come back to the others, perhaps. Um, a lot of talk about the curve, and in fact, it's of course several curves happening in rural areas and counties and small towns and, and big cities and so forth, um, sort of in uh, waves is not the right word, but um, um, at separate times. So I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, or, or a lot about um, how these curves are likely to play out in terms of both timing and severity. So for example, will, will a, um, a relatively sparsely populated county see a similar curve as New York or um, uh, another hotspot, even though the overall numbers would be a lot lower. And then um, related to that, could you also talk about when we might see the uh, overall peak in the United States, given all these different curves happening across the country? 
So you, you raise uh, an important point uh, um, uh, alluded to in, in my last comments and in, in that question as well. The, um, there is no um, one single curve uh, being experienced by the country or by the world. What we're seeing is local epidemics, which have uh, staggered start times, so, so uh, uh, to, to your point. Uh, the shape of those curves um, in the absence of an, any intervention uh, is um, influenced by uh, the contact patterns within those locations. So um, in places where there's a lot of contact among people, uh, we might expect to see a, uh, you know, a, a steeper upward slope and a steeper downward slope, uh, higher numbers, right? Something that reflects a higher R-naught or basic reproductive number. In places where just by virtue of how they're structured, we see more social distancing, uh, that's the equivalent basically of, of seeing a flatter curve. And that may just be, you know, as, as you were again alluding to in rural counties, there are different uh, uh, patterns of interaction. So, so the, the shapes of these curves may be different. The shapes of the curves will also be different because of the different timing and type of mitigation efforts uh, and uh, the differences in the success of those mitigation efforts. So recommendations, uh, not just the recommendations, but how well they're actually uh, followed by populations. So um, uh, that will also very much influence uh, the, the shape of each of these individual curves. So it's hard to say uh, exactly what the, a curve will look like with mitigation efforts. That depends on, again, uh, how well they're actually adhered to and what they are. Uh, and um, to, the, to the same point, trying to predict for the country as a whole what the cumulative shape of this curve will be as we try to uh, add up all the different waves uh, in all the different communities. Uh, very hard to do um, in the absence of much better understanding uh, of the timing uh, of the initiation of the epidemic in these different places, uh, the nature of interactions, uh, and um, the, the impact of whatever mitigation efforts are being put in place. So uh, I, I'd say I, I, everyone wishes that they could have an answer to that, but I think it's a moving target uh, as, uh, particularly as, as um, interventions are changing and being introduced and people are following them to different extents. Okay, it looks like um, we'll go to the next question. Please go ahead. Um, my question is, today we are seeing the lockdown lifted in Wuhan and immediately high amount of travel in and out of that city. I've heard some people say they felt this was not a good idea because it could possibly lead to a second wave given there is still no vaccine and therefore more um, shut down orders, waves of them. I wanted to ask you your thoughts on that and then also ask you for us, how likely do you think it is that we may see multiple waves of lockdown orders, not just the one we are in? One of uh, the concerns that we have um, about the 
this notion of, of uh, whether we'll see one wave or multiple waves centers on the uh, fraction of the population that remains susceptible uh, um, because of mitigation and containment efforts. This more, the, the more success we see in containing uh, the epidemic, um, the more susceptibles remain in a population, uh, and those susceptibles are then a population which we could see a second wave emerge. So um, the the you know the one way to to, to view this is what 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 would happen if we did nothing. Uh, if we did nothing, we would see the epidemic go through a population and we would see a large fraction of the population infected. Um, and if infection confers protective immunity, uh, then we would expect that um, there would just, you know, the, the number of susceptibles would be depleted and the epidemic would come to a conclusion because there was sufficient protection in the population. This is the herd immunity concept. As we uh, introduce mitigation and containment efforts, uh, the extent to which they're successful will prevent uh, the epidemic from going through the population to that extent, meaning that there will be some individuals in the population who remain susceptible. Those then that the size of that population would uh, then uh, or that population would then be at risk for subsequent waves. Uh, so, so that is just basically the the um, the the underlying concepts here. In Wuhan, uh, it's not clear uh, to me what fraction of the population remains susceptible. Uh, it unless they're uh, was a lot of unreported infection or very high rates of asymptomatic infection uh, that we're not aware of right now. Um, it would suggest that uh, still uh, a, you know, a substantial portion of that population remains susceptible. Um, so it suggests that uh, to prevent another wave or outbreaks uh, will take a lot of vigilance uh, for uh, surveillance, and then case identification, contact tracing, quarantine and isolation, consistent with the types of efforts that China put in place uh, initially. I think they'll, they'll have to maintain them given the, the extent of the population that's susceptible. This is similar to uh, what has been observed in Singapore. So in Singapore, they did a very good job of containing uh, the outbreak. Uh, but then uh, they've had to deal with um, uh, additional outbreaks as people have been coming in uh, and introducing, we think, introducing uh, um, um, COVID-19 again. So they've started to see additional outbreaks that have required uh, um, recrudescent mitigation uh, um, efforts. Could we see the same thing here? Uh, it's quite possible. Uh, I think you know that, that formally the same processes are are could, you know that this is just how epidemics work. And so so uh, it could be that um, if we are very successful, uh, then um, again those places that are most successful and that have the you know that have susceptible populations still uh, will be at risk for additional waves. How we manage that? 
uh, I think will be very dependent on what tools we have at our disposal. So um, if we have uh, at that point a vaccine, we can get to the point, we can get to herd immunity. We can actually prevent additional waves by vaccinating a lot of the population. Uh, if we have therapeutics, uh, then that is, um, you know, a, a, a another possibility because we could help reduce, that is another uh, thing that we could have in our arsenal, we could shape how we respond, uh, because maybe that will help reduce the stress on hospitals and critical care beds if the therapeutics either uh, prevent progression to severe disease or are able to uh, help people recover rapidly. Uh, um, otherwise, with non-pharmaceutical interventions, so the social distancing and, and stay-at-home orders and, and so on, uh, masks, um, those would then be what we'd have to turn to. So uh, for places um, like Seattle or Washington, uh, where it seems like their containment efforts have been um, uh, successful, as we talked about earlier, um, I would worry that the extent of the susceptible population means that they will be at, at risk for, um, for another wave. Yeah, I was just going to say that the numbers didn't make sense to me because with 83,000 cases, but 11 million people in that city, uh, I have a lot of friends in Singapore and it's much easier to control there. They take people directly from the airport to hotels. It's also an island. They see very easily how people are coming in and out. There are not as many egresses as Wuhan. One more question. Um, will one day you believe that when a vaccine is developed, because obviously there's a lot of effort for that, this will join sort of the arsenal of mumps, measles, rubella, that this will just be something standard that, that we all get or young kids get? I think that is certainly one one plausible scenario, uh, uh, you know, and, and that is, I, I think it's um, uh, hopeful to imagine that we will come to a vaccine. It is not a certainty. Uh, and I think that is just a, a, a caution uh, that we need to keep in mind. Um, you know, there are a lot of very smart people working very hard on trying to come up with a vaccine and many different approaches being taken. Um, but uh, it, it, it's, it's not a given that we will get one. So uh, I, I, again, I'm, I very much hope we will. Uh, and I know that people are putting maximal effort towards that end. Uh, and um, including developing the infrastructure such that if we do come up with an effective vaccine, it can be mass produced and distributed quickly. Uh, and I think those are all the right things that we need to be doing. Uh, but uh, it's also important to, to recognize it may not, we, we don't know whether we will be successful yet. Mm, okay. I thought it was one of the things that, um, that if enough resources and time it would likely happen, but I realize now that that may not be the case. Thank you so I, much. I think I think the operative word in your statement is likely. Yeah. Uh, we still don't have a vaccine for HIV. Mm, yeah. Right. So worth keeping in mind that uh, even even something where decades of effort have been poured in, uh, we have not um, gotten a vaccine. Now, a coronavirus uh, is a very different. <laughs> kind of situation from, from HIV for a variety of reasons. Uh, so I'm not saying that uh, that should be our guide, 
And there are many viruses for which we have come up with effective vaccines. Uh, you mentioned measles, mumps, and rubella. Those are three. Uh, so it certainly can be done. Uh, but again, um, I'm just, I, I uh, am just being cautious by saying uh, it's not a given. Sure. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Right. And just want to check in with you uh, if you had another question or if not. I, I do. Thank you. Um, Great. Yeah, I, I messed up my mute button before there, but uh, that was a, a fascinating discussion. So actually, um, it was among my questions, and I'm going to do a follow on on that immunity uh, discussion. Will at some point we be able to figure out how many people have actually been infected? So say, you know, in three months or six months or a year from now, can this, can this be accurately determined by random, random testing of people who were never diagnosed or something like that so that we have a better answer as to the, the questions that you just spoke to? Yes. Yeah, so, so I, um, people are working very hard on this. So trying to come up with, uh, a way to do um, population serological surveys. So serological tests look for antibodies to SARS-CoV-2. Uh, there are serological tests that exist already. They were one of the first things that people uh, were working on because uh, of their importance in identifying people who have been infected. So, uh, you know, they, they um, may not have uh, as good utility as a diagnostic like a PCR-based test, but because the uh, immune system develops antibodies to infectious agents, they could be uh, very useful um, for asking whether people have been exposed to SARS-CoV-2. Now, um, there, and, and those types of tests can then be used in doing population surveys uh, to um, estimates the fraction of the population that has been infected. And of course, as you scale that up, you know, the more, the more people you test, uh, the, the better view you'll have of the population. You can imagine testing everybody to see for each individual whether they've been exposed or not. Um, but of course, we have various methods for uh, trying to estimate the fraction giving a sampling of a subpopulation. Now, that depends on a few things. Uh, first, that um, you develop antibodies. Um, so we assume, um, because this is what we see with many other pathogens, that if you're infected, you do develop antibodies. Uh, but for how long do they stick around? Uh, and how much does this depend on uh, the extent of symptoms? So could it be that people who have very mild infections or potentially um, who are asymptomatic, uh, do they develop as robust an immune response in terms of both the amount of antibodies that they generate and uh, then the duration with which those antibodies stick around? Assessing the presence of antibodies is not necessarily the same thing as assessing immunity, right? So actually protection from being infected again. So it could be that uh, if you have enough antibodies generated after an exposure and infection with SARS-CoV-2, it could be that above some amount of antibodies, you are protected against getting reinfected. We do not know at this point 
if that's the case or what that number might be. Um, but that is another really important uh, um, issue to address. Uh, and then relatedly, uh, we expect to see waning of immunity because that is what we see again uh, in, in from our knowledge of other other infections that protection generated uh, by infection or by vaccination uh, can wane over time. So uh, um, you know you're, you may be most strongly protected immediately, uh, but then um, it may uh, it may go down. Um, uh, with time. Uh, this, for example, is why for some vaccines you need to get revaccinated uh, regularly. So uh, there are, I think, still um, some really important questions around serological surveys and our interpretation of them uh, that, that will need to be done. Uh, but getting back to your uh, original question again, um, uh, yes, we think serological surveys will be a critical tool uh, for understanding the extent uh, of spread within a population. And we really hope uh, that those will be able to be rolled out uh, in the near term. In fact, I've seen some initial small studies uh, um, from various locations where they have already started doing this. Um, uh, so, so hopefully even, even in the next a few weeks, we'll see serological su surveys that can uh, expand our understanding of the extent of spread uh, and the fraction of the population that may have been asymptomatically infected. I'd also uh, add on to that, uh, we need these serological surveys now to address these questions in part because of uh, the challenges we initially had in doing diagnostic testing. If we had uh, large-scale testing from the start, uh, we would probably have a much better sense of what the answers are to those questions, even without serological testing. But now we really need this, these zero surveys or serological surveys uh, to, to, to answer these questions. Okay, quick, quick follow on that. Um, so what are the odds, if, is it even possible to say, that this virus uh, mutates enough that it changes all of that and, and how would it change that picture? Uh, I can't speak to odds uh, about that, and um, uh, but but your question uh, to to uh, is gets at one of one of two reasons why uh, um, we could see uh, at a population level the equivalent of, of waning protection. It could be that it's just the the waning of the immune system to a given strain, and it could be that the that what is circulating changes like what we see with, uh, with influenza, where uh, from season to season, roughly, uh, we see uh, um, change in um, the parts of the virus that we develop immune responses to that, that help protect us. So uh, is that going to be the case here? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I think that is going to be one of the things that we're going to track very closely. But let, let me press you just a little bit on that. Um, so we had uh, uh, MERS and we had SARS 2003. Um, you know, it, historically speaking, do we have any sense at all that coronaviruses tend to uh, mutate at higher or lower 
rates or, or possibilities than um, influenza? So uh, there's mutation rate, and then there's change in the antigenic parts of the virus, right? So mutation rate is different from antigenic change, where the antigenic change is the you know, change in the parts of the virus that we develop immune responses to. Uh, the mutation rate is uh, about what we see for RNA viruses generally. Uh, that does not mean that the uh, uh, the um, antigenic, the rate of change of, of the antigenic sites is going to be the same as, as flu. Um, for, uh, I, for the, um, for SARS and COVID-1 and MERS, uh, I think the, the question is, uh, it's, it's a little bit tough to answer for those because they haven't spread so widely in the population that there might be uh, pressure from host immunity that selects for uh, novel antigenic strains. For example, I think that overall uh, the numbers for both of those has been relatively small. For the other coronaviruses, uh, I think the numbers are higher, uh, but I, um, I haven't seen uh, the genetic or uh, relatedly antigenic data um, to suggest whether there's antigenic change. However, um, there was a study using one of the uh, circulating coronaviruses that causes cold-like symptoms that uh, um, I believe this was a study in military recruits where they uh, challenged them with the virus and then challenged them again with the same strain a year later. Uh, and they were able to see that a year later, people were still able to be, after an initial challenge and infection, uh, were able to be infected again. So it suggests that um, uh, at least the immunity to the circulating coronaviruses may wane fairly quickly. And then for SARS, uh, people uh, looked at uh, titers, so the extent of uh, antibody response to SARS-CoV-1, uh, or the duration, excuse me, the duration uh, of, of, that, uh, of that response, and saw that the antibody levels went down, I think it was uh, or after around three years. So uh, we don't know whether that decline in antibodies also means a decline in the extent of protection, right? Because no one was going to challenge people again with SARS-CoV-1, right? To see, okay, the antibody levels went down, but are they still protected, right? That kind of study won't get done, but, uh, um, but at least it, there, there is evidence out there that uh, immunity may, for other coronaviruses, wane uh, over time. Thank you so much for all that, I appreciate it. Yep. Okay, uh, next question. Um, you would like me to ask, what is your sense of when we'll be able to return to somewhat normal life and how do you see that playing out? Do you see it being gradual, a gradual process? And what activities do you think we will able to resume first? Uh, this is, these are questions on everyone's mind. Uh, and I, I think um, th no one has an answer uh, either uh, from the perspective of political will uh, or from the perspective of uh, uh, public health as yet. So uh, 
couple of colleagues, uh, Michael Barnett, uh, Carolyn Bucky, uh, and I had uh, an op-ed in the, the, the Washington Post last week where we underscored the importance of using this time uh, to try to understand which mitigation efforts uh, were successful in slowing the spread uh, of SARS-CoV-2 um, uh, and then trying to use that information to um, help shape uh, the decision-making around how to safely emerge. Um, but I think that right now uh, it's, it's very hard to um, make guesses about when it when will be what, what will be our thresholds uh, for re-emergence and what the staging for uh, emerging from all our distant different social distancing will be. I think it, again it's going to depend on location uh, given how fragmented the experience of this epidemic is uh, by location and then by different types of interventions. So I think it will really depend on, on uh, on a variety of factors and may not be uniform um, across locations. This concludes the April 8th press conference.